187th Precinct bonus episode. The bonus episode for the book Lady Lady I Did It. And where better to start than with book huffing, which has taken on a bit of a life of its own. It's book? a very popular um, part of the sequence. Is it? Us, well, particularly you, Steve-O, having a good <laughs> sniff of the old book. Oh, that was a good thorough mm. deep dive there. Right. 100, page 104. If you compare... Page 44. Yes. Yes, it's a medium, medium age smell. What we should probably do is do the book huffing, get you to describe it, and then the listener should have to guess which edition it is. Oh, well, yeah. Call 1-800-555-BOOK. <laughs> book huff. <laughs> well, but, my, go on, what's my, your edition then? Well, anyway? mine's the a pan, which yours... Well, the... Ours look very similar, but they're actually different. This is the 1980 UK pan. Now, I've got this. Mine says it's a 1980 UK pan edition. Oh. But there is differences, because as you were looking at... Earlier on tonight, you were looking in the back of yours and reading out a list of books advertised in the back, as paperbacks often do. Mm. And mine doesn't have that. Also, mine is only 90p when it was originally on sale. Well, it has some, because it has the uh, Ed McBain's, but again, uh, mine's saying you can buy Hell for the Chief for oh, £1.50, and yet yours says... Uh, this is interesting. Come on, get the numbers. 80 pence. There surely can't have been a price hike like that in the course of 1980. Well, how much is yours on the No, back? well, no. Uh, but So I suspect that this must be later... Interesting. There was significant inflation in the early to mid eighties. I can well believe it. Yeah. Within, um, within the year nineteen eighty. Well, not within the year nineteen eighty. No, but see, it's I got. No, I was two. Money didn't interest me at the time. Uh, yeah, significant differences we're spotting here. We'd have to do a very forensic, forensic. examination. Well, I might forensically forensic. Yeah, you see, they've got the same ISBN number. But yeah, mine is clearly later in the eighties. Yeah, it I feel must like be. Uh, what's his name, Corso, in the Ninth Gate. I'm not sure when. I don't know Barcode's, what any of that meant. That Polanski became... film with. Uh, oh yeah. Where he's uh, comparing uh, books written by the devil. Oh, right. Finds slightly I've different. I've not seen that one. Yes. So what was that about barcodes? I'm not sure when barcodes became commonplace on... on yeah, because uh, my edition doesn't have a barcode. Right, Your well, edition does have a barcode. I want to do a quick bit I'm of research thinking that, that feels to me like a bit of a later 80s sort of feature. Because certainly in terms of records, you only really see them creeping in from sort of the mid-80s onwards and... I don't know. But you said you've been uh, cataloguing your record collection recently, haven't you? So I, I have you been. You must have been peering at numbers and uh, catalogue numbers yeah. and references. It becomes a lot easier when barcodes actually do come in because otherwise I'm squinting, taking up a glass and squinting at matrix run out grooves um, to try and find very slightly different etchings. Mm. <laughs> when do you think the barcode was introduced in the UK? 1974. Right, well, you know the answer. On what product do you think that was? Don't you say anything. <laughs> was I right? Sliced bread. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah, <laughs> was, quite good. was that a tall guess? It was an informed guess. On a packet of uh, Wrigley's chewing gum. All right. I, the reason it was an informed guess is because a little while ago, um, my mum and stepdad were arguing about when barcodes became oh. popular in, in grocery stores, and I think we looked it up in the end. 
And so I had an idea that it was the 70s. Now, th- this is like in your time, isn't it? Barcodes. I would imagine that they probably came onto books and the like a bit later on, generally. Mm. I don't mm. know, definitely a lot of early 80s editions of records still don't have them. Types of barcode. Oh, my goodness. Bloody hell. This is... This is, uh, but what's amazing is the edition I've got, which is UK 1980, 90p. Yours says UK 1980, and it is £1.95. That is a massive It's a massive hike, difference. isn't it? Yeah. It is. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't... There are some different numbers in it. Oh, it's, it's mystical. It is. And yet, if some time has passed between them, still no one's thought to change the cover. No, no one's... The, Rendering of the colours is slightly different. The picture's a bit crisper on your edition, Steve-O. The, the picture on the front of our pan editions of McBain's Lady Lady I Did It is of the front left of the bumper of a Chevrolet, and that's it. And once you know what the plot of the book is, that's a real, a real giveaway. If you pay a lot of attention to the front cover of the book and then read it, then it's probably going to set off some um, alarm bells when a certain character appears, given his There's occupation. A very, a very detailed photograph by Colin Thomas of, of a, the front of a car. I, I don't you know. want to uh, put down Colin Thomas's work. It's a very no, nice no, picture. No, no, he did what he was told, I'm yeah. sure. But it's got nice shiny gold McBain. And on the cover of mine, it's got an indentation of the, the number 40. Have you seen that, Steve-O, on the, on the front there? Indented into mm-hmm. it, number 40. Whereas yours has actually got written inside it, and yeah. we do like some mysterious stuff. Cadden 94514367, it says. Someone's written something in. Ring it. Well, uh, I, I try, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get to the bottom of this mystery. Okay, Steve-O's <laughs> going to the bottom of mystery, so Morgan, you better tell us about your edition. Well, very well. Uh, again, I've got the boring edition. It's just the Orion. Uh, um, 2003? Uh, 2005, this one. Oh, right, okay. Um, right, so the year of uh, McBain's death. So, still relatively sort of yellowing a little bit. It doesn't smell very exciting or anything. Um, smell exciting. Um, <laughs> Who's your dedication to in there? Uh, it, it's still not rededicated to Drajika, interestingly. It's uh, uh, dedicated... To Henry Morrison? That's the guy. Yeah. Um, and the cover... A bit less annoyingly spoilery. It's uh, it does have a somewhat damaged and blood-stained copy of principles and methods. One of one of the books Claire Townsend is, is getting out of the bookshop. A necklace and a, a, a file with what appears to be cling case written on it. But there is also a, fo- a picture on the front of the file of the same Chevrolet that appears in your editions, oh, but right. it's a little bit less highlighted, so it might not give that. things away quite so much. I'm, I'm not really finding anything yeah. in the answer to... But, you, you know, you, you search under Lady Lady, um, I did it UK pan editions, and the third thing that comes up is novelty penis frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by an article entitled Argentinian Critics Pan Margaret Thatcher Biotic Biopic The Iron Lady. What? I mean, all important news, but... The internet uh, is such a wonderful thing, isn't it? And then below that is uh, Lady Lady, I did it, 1980 pan paperback. I'll see so, what I can find out and I'll put it on the, the Twitter feed. So, yeah. Instagram as well. You can follow us on that. 
Anyway, let's get away from that. Uh, Steve O's now obsessively. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's just a bit, bit of a mystery, but I've got a new, nice new frying pan on the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'll cheer up when you make your eggs in the morning. I know, yeah. <laughs> so, full disclosure, everyone, you'll have just heard some music, and that's because we've had our first ever technical failure partway through Ooh. recording the bonus episode. <laughs> Luckily, not too far before I noticed, the SD card ran out and we lost some classic material. But it gives us time to regroup about this very, very important issue. And that important issue is Steve-O proposed during the main podcast, which we would have listened to over and over again for the past (laughs) week, that the old column by Anthony Boucher from the New York Times called Criminals at Large be rebooted as criminals and little and large. And we're going to explain who little and large are for you now. So, Steve-O, let the, let the people across the world, all our listeners in, in France and Canada and America and Japan and Finland and Australia, well, you'd think they'd know them in Australia, but well, let everyone know who little and large are. They're probably on postage stamps the world <laughs> over, little well, and large. One would hope but, so. Uh, they, were, they were a... Um, a pair of, uh, well, comedians, can I use that? Entertainers, maybe. <laughs> Club comics. Who were on yeah, uh, Saturday night television during the 1980s and attracted hundreds mm. of millions of people of billions on a weekly billions. basis. Was, during a time in, when basically any duo of Northern Club comics could seem to get some kind of very, very highly rated primetime TV show. And... Um, as the name suggests, one of them was uh, little, <laughs> and one of them was large. Although the the little one was tall and the large one was short, and they used to wear it was more about di- their dinner jackets, respective girths. I would yeah. say, <laughs> and there was a perm, well, go- <laughs> and there was a perm going on. It was yeah. definitely at least one perm happening. Um, but the the concept of the television program, so you could get these fairly largely unfunny entertainers, but then have a guest criminal. A guest murderer. Yeah, <laughs> or, you know. They could do a, a light-hearted skit about um, trying to book a holiday in a travel agent, but the travel agent's played by... Dennis Nielsen. Dennis Nielsen. <laughs> or you could have a skit about someone going into hospital to have an operation and the doctor's mixed up, and it's Harold Shipman. <laughs> oh, oh. Classic oh, stuff Laughs like all that. around. Yeah, there's nothing funnier than that. Myra Hindley <laughs> serving school dinners or something. With yeah. little and large dressed as schoolboys. Yeah, oh God. Oh, they would be, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I can just see Eddie Large in his short shorts now, and it's making me feel a little queasy. The thing is, none of us can particularly remember the episodes as a whole, can we? I've got a, a memory of little and large doing a routine about the song Never on a Sunday, which is a sort of Greek rhythm song where they just smashed plates. <laughs> that would definitely happen. It was just some sort of crockery revenge going on. And uh, what was your memory, uh, Morgan? I, I don't know if I actually really remember it or if I've invented it out of some <laughs> dark, twisted corner of my brain, but I seem to recall them doing some kind of heavy metal skit where they had um, a young guitarist at the time, Thomas McRocklin, who must have been... Was McRocklin actually his name? I... I I have a weird feeling it might actually really be his name. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure the the internet could verify that in a heartbeat if I could be asked to look it up. Um, (laughs) But he was a young lad who had 
it was the youngest artist ever to, to have an Ibanez endorsement, and he was a heavy metal shredder. And I think they definitely had some skit with Eddie Large with some daft big hair wig and keep hitting my mic stand because I'm so excited. He is, um, he's flailing all over the place. Because uh, Eddie Large loved the opportunity to get his guitar out because I think he probably vaguely played a little bit and, uh, yeah, there, there was loads of arsing around like that. And I believe Thomas Rockland is still an Ibanez endorsee to this, to this day and still tours the music shows, giving product demonstrations and the and, like. And reading from his memoirs, My Life with Little and Large. How My Life Was Ruined by Little and Large. <laughs> So that's who Little and Large were. The UK was haunted by the spectre of double acts for years. I'm just looking across the table now, and Steve-O has just shown Morgan something on his phone, and Morgan's given a double thumbs it's, it's, up. It's been verified. Oh. It's been it really ver- happened. I didn't imagine it. Do you feel it, better now that you know that it was real and I that do. you didn't just dream this? I, I, I would have felt a bit odd if that was what I was having dreams <laughs> about, to be honest. Uh, so that's good. Excellent stuff. Well, there you go. So, yeah, there was Little and Large. There was also a double act who were almost identical called Cannon and Ball. Not quite so hefty, the Ball character. But sounds weird. It definitely, um, yeah, the, the same sort of, like, yeah. tall, skinny, and then short, permed guy. A bit more braces twanging. Cheeky, chappy. It was the sort of, yeah, the, the, the tall, skinny one was always the straight chap. The, sort of the straight chap, the straight man in the thing. The, the, the tall guy was always that. And the other was the wild card. Oh, who, he was a bit zany. Does something like wear crazy braces or Absolutely. be a bit big. And then they have massive tax fraud problems. And then they become born again Christians. That sort of thing. Oh, cannon and ball. I think so, yeah. Oh, right. And, and then, uh, I, then I go and see them on Great Yarmouth Pier. Which is a classic and place to go and a, see. Apocalypse moment. Supported by the Platters. <laughs> platters? <laughs> Who were quite good. Well, I, mean, I, I don't believe so. they had any original members in, possibly some relatives of original members, but they were good. The Tupperware platters. <laughs> they, were, they, they were the official official platters, whoever inherited the name. They were good, and then, yeah, Cannonball. Yeah. And let's not even get into the crazy world of Hale and Pace. Ooh, let's not. Picked, Slightly later. They, Slightly, they yeah. picked up the mantle, I think. Yeah. They're a bit more edgy. The, the, the baton... Am I right in thinking, or have I also invented oh, this? No, uh, were, were they at one point cast as uh, DL and Pascal in a cheap sure. adaptation? You might, be, you might be right there. Because that... that would tie in nicely with police procedurals, because Reginald Hill's DL and Pascal series, which is excellent, by the way. I haven't tried any of it. Well, I've, I've never I've, watched any of I've the got TV shows. I've got either. a couple of duplicates, which I'll happily pass on Ooh, to you. Um, that's exciting, folks. Um, like really good as long as you can get over the fact that definitely that many murders do not occur in rural Yorkshire once you can get past that it's actually a really good series oh excellent stuff oh well there you go we found a link to police procedurals there Halen Pace who were the follow up double act to the like of Cannon and Ball and Little and Large were cast briefly as the characters DL and Pasco in in my vague memory or imagination. No, I think you're possibly. right, actually. It rings a bell with me as well. It's one of those things that you sort of discover and go, what? No one's going to have a clue what we're talking about. Let's get back to some important business. Uh, our friend Steve Morse, friend of the show Steve Morse, submitted a couple of, of questions, mm. of which the only one I'm deigning to answer, because he's a silly man. <laughs> he he asked this question, so get your brains working on this one. Which Ed McBain book would be best turned into a picture book for my three-year-old daughter to read? Oh. 
And well, he does follow up by saying, and are any comic versions of McBain titles available? Well, you did already discuss uh, Nevin Hunter children's book illustrated by Quentin Blake. Yes, indeed. Which that I think would be a good one to look out for, although well, that's I not Ed imagine McBain, it's, is it? Is it? it isn't, this is true. I mean, how could you turn an 87th precinct <laughs> into a children's book for a three-year-old? Well, no. There is the Christmas story, which was released in an illustrated edition, which is quite... Is a bit less bleak than hmm. some of the other ones. Yeah, pro- probably that one. I, I can't think any of the others yeah. would have be any remote yeah, interest. It, to even a the ones that are more light-hearted tend to have something fairly nasty in them, as you know, is the nature of the genre, really. Hmm. However, I will say off the back <laughs> of that that following the Eight Seventh Precinct TV series, there was a series of comics about the Eight Seventh Precinct. Brilliant. Published. They don't loom large in comics history, I don't think, but I think that was the case with a lot of TV tie-ins, but Mm. they did exist. I'm just going to pass this over to Morgan. What I'm doing is I'm passing Morgan a book called Best Crime Comics on a page called 87th Precinct. What's it called? This Blind Man's Man's Bluff. Bluff. Yeah. Mm. And that purports to feature the characters as they're portrayed in the TV show. I see, yeah. But I don't think the artwork particularly looks like that. Not really. It's kind of crude, but I actually quite like it. Stark um, is the word I'd yeah, use. Yeah, it's um, some like fairly sort of like stark line work, not quite as much shading and some of these things as you'd expect from a, a modern comic. But it actually looks really cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd quite like to read it. I would, I'd um, like to read a lot more of those, but I, I think there was a handful of them and there's some business about the art, um, the author of that being anonymous and writing a crap script for the next one and, and right, putting okay. the artist off drawing them. But this is a, a, a big book called Best Crime Comics, which I've recommended to people before. I think I've mentioned once or twice that there was some, some comic tie-ins. It would be a rich scene for some good comic adaptations oh, and graphic novel adaptations. Yeah. Well, there have been a, a run of really successful... Um, Adaptations of the Richard Stark Parker oh, right. mm. um, yeah, yeah. Uh, novels, which I think have been really well received. So maybe on the back of that, some other kind of classic crime fiction will be picked up and, and people will do some some adaptations. Because I, I think definitely it would be, be a great thing for, for someone to do. Yeah. So I'm pleased to have, have been able to get hold of that one. And I think we got this... This book, Best Crime Comics, not knowing that that was in there, actually. It was because it, mm. was, it was cheap in a bookshop or something I saw once. I can't remember yeah. the origin story of me buying that book, um, but to have that 87th Precinct thing yeah. is, is a little... Yeah, a little it looks treat. like an amazing book just generally, but uh, yeah. So, Mr. Stephen Morse, I don't think there is genuinely... You could not subject a three-year-old to, to any of the 87th Precinct stories, no. except, perhaps, And All Around the House, which is already written with a... Less of a distressing storyline to it. Indeed. Let, let, maybe let her get a little bit closer to the double figures before introducing her to, to that. I, I reckon, like, once you're 10, you're totally fine to start reading these things. But or, or just pick one and, and read it to her. She's <laughs> not going to know. Yeah. She might have terrifying nightmares and have to have therapy for the rest of her life. But <laughs> that's the thing. But yeah, the world of comics and, and, and crime is. Again, this big sort of pulpy mishmash of, mm. of where they were released and where they were done. And a lot of these things were never done as, as comics because of they existed in this very cheap publishing mm. world anyway. Quick turnaround, yeah. cheap printing type stuff in the early days. So, yeah, a, a modern graphic novel would be a lovely thing to see. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, anyone listening, take up the, the baton, run with it, come on. Yeah, put in all that work so we can benefit. 
Absolutely. <laughs> One thing I would like to mention as well that I didn't mention in our main podcast, but I did put on our Twitter thing is I updated the book list on our website. I'm trying to be quite comprehensive about this. And what I've done in my update is basically add in the short stories from the 87th Precinct world that don't feature in the main canon. And I've sort of numbered them with 48A, 48B to put them in relation to the main list (laughs) as well. So there is a few short stories you can get hold of. And I'm going to have to refer to my own list because my memory is not what it once was. There's not lots of them. But it's worth having a look to see if you want to try and collect them. If you can, flipping help me because I can't get hold of them. So there were, in 1997, there was a short story that was published in TV Guide magazine. That's insane, isn't it? Called Reruns, which as far as I can tell is about someone having their TV stolen. These are covered in Erin MacDonald's book, The Literary Companion, about Ed McBain, Evan Hunter. So I'm assuming copies do exist somewhere. Yep. 48B from 1998... Yeah. <laughs> you remember years? Remember how to say years? 1998 was The Last Best Hope, which is a Matthew Hope novel, but that's the one with Corella in it. Mm. So that's a, that's not an 87th Precinct spin-off, but it's got Corella in, so that counts. I don't think I knew there was a, a crossover between those two. Yeah. That's great. Then in 2005, there's a story called Merely Hate, which was in the volume Transgressions, which Ed McBain edited, but also put an 87th Precinct short story in a novella. Oh. And between 2003 and 2005... Ed McBain was on the BBC as part of this programme called End of Story, which was a writing competition. And several authors put forward the start of a short story Mm. and the competition was people to put endings to it. But of course, he also wrote his own ending. (laughs) So I have linked to that because it is officially legally available. Mm. And that was the last published 87th Precinct story. Amazing. So there are four or five more in there, but the scholar Ted Bergman includes them as just individual numbers in the list. And that, sort of sends me into a slight OCD <laughs> nightmare of, of saying, but there's 55 87th Precinct things. Mm. So I've given them sub-numbers to try no, and put them into... I think that's very sensible. Enough. I know, I can't help myself. Very I just like to organise things into charts and grids. Okie dokie. It is well, to your credit. Thank you very much. <laughs> so we shall return before too long with our next podcast, which will be about the book... The Empty Hours, or the Uh, three uh. short stories, The Empty Hours, the novellas. Maybe we'll take responsibility each for one of those ones for leading the discussion and debate on that. That sounds terrifying. Mix it up a little bit. But we're hoping to bring in some other bits and pieces, such as review The Young Savages, the film based on Evan Hunter's A Matter of Conviction, which Mm -hmm. I think probably ties quite neatly into See Them Die and and Gangs and Puerto Rican society at the time. That sort of thing. Don't you know? And hopefully some other stuff should be coming up soon. I'm trying to drag another colleague to do a review of the Desert Island Discs appearance of Evan Hunter, Ed McBain. I'm also getting someone on board to look at the birds, which is taking up a big part of Ed McBain's life at this point because he's yeah. moving out to, to write it. And if you've not read Me and Hitch by Evan Hunter, it's a very good memoir and takes about 20 minutes to read because it's, it's quite short, but very, very interesting. So... Until we return with whatever we return with, (laughs) I'm going to say goodbye in a mysterious voice. Goodbye. And? Goodbye. And? Goodbye. Sounds a little bit weird, that. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) 